What I want to concentrate on is the area of foundations, foundations for eschatology. So let me give you kind of a thumbnail sketch of what these prophets reveal. And the essence of what they reveal is God's plan. And God's plan is very evident throughout Scripture. And if we have a picture of this plan of God, this broad picture, then we are in a position to be able to better not only interpret, but better apply prophetic scriptures to ourselves in the 21st century and have a biblical perspective. That's why we have a blessed hope, as we talked about earlier. We have a glorious future. We have a blessed hope because we understand that all eschatology is going to bring a resolution to evil. All eschatology is going to bring all of the hopes that we would have to fruition. And it's going to bring us into a glorious position in the future. And with that perspective, we can face anything that God allows and permits to come into our experience today, including martyrdom, as many experienced throughout not only church history, but during the time that some of these prophetic passages were actually written. Like the book of Revelation was written to a persecuted church under the emperor Domitian, some of them being martyred. They could face that because they had this perspective, this biblical perspective. Do you remember one of the things that I did in the foundations class? I said that if you understand these foundations, everything builds upon foundation, upon foundation, upon foundation. The unfolding of God's plan and the beginning of that is creation. And I go into a lot of detail in the foundations class to show how this is foundational to everything else, including and particularly science. If we don't have a good biblical foundation concerning creation, we're going to end up with all of the secular views concerning science, which are unbiblical views of science. And we developed, remember, in that a a biblical foundation for science, which is different from a secular view of science. I'm not going to do that today, but creation is the starting point. And I'm going to expand all of these in this foundations, and we're going to look at prophetic passages within all of these. And there's prophetic passages that gives to us in Genesis 1 and 2, actually chapter 2 primarily in terms of creation. So it is foundational. So an understanding that the world in which we live in was created by God, and by the way, science gives all of the evidence for it. There's sufficient scientific support for God as creator as opposed to the worldly secular alternative of evolution. And we go into some of that in the Foundations class. The world in which we live in was created by God, but it's not the same creation. Something happened, and that's the next foundation. This is very important, the fall, the fall of man, foundational. Now, the church has a tendency to minimize this, but this is foundation. You have to understand this concept and this event or series of events because everything else is going to follow. We are living in that same world. That world was drastically changed. It's not just a spiritual thing between Adam and Eve and God. It's, it's a material, physical, universal thing. The entire universe was affected by the fall of man. All creatures are affected, all of nature. So we have to understand the fall. 
In fact, you could summarize all of the rest of world history as God working in time to reverse the effects of the fall. That's the rest of world history. God will not complete that work until when? The last event of world history, which we said was what? Great White Throne. That's the last event of world history. God will bring a total resolution to the problem of evil. The secular world does not have an answer or does not have a means of dealing with evil. In the secular mind, it's just what is. It always has been here. It always will be. There's no resolution to it. It's the Bible that gives us a resolution. In fact, that event tells us that evil is bounded. It had a beginning. And it's going to have a resolution and a confinement in the lake of fire. So the fall is very, very important. And the consequences of the fall eventuate in a flood. Now, there's a judgment related to the fall itself, but God makes it very evident and very dramatic in that he brings a worldwide flood and destroys all of humanity except those that are on the ark, the eight on the ark. So we have very early, and by the way, this is part of God giving a resolution to evil. He Judgment is God separating out that that he loves from that that destroys. That's what judgment is. And he makes it very evident what he's going to do is he's going to destroy all of humanity. And not only all of humanity, but it's going to touch the physical realm as well. Just as God is creator of the physical realm, and just as the fall has affected the creation, so also the flood involves the creation as well. But God is separating out eight people from that that corrupts, that that destroys. And it's a pattern and a foundation for all the rest of God's judgments. And there's going to be a future judgment, not of water, and that's prophesied, by the way, in the accounts of the flood. That's not the last judgment. So the flood is a very important event of world history. And I make a big point that these are... The most important events of world history. Most important events of world history. Now look them up in your UNM world history course. Won't find them, right? Well, the secular view reinterprets history and doesn't give us the most important events. In fact, these events are the most important events, the rest of them as well, of all of world history because this is what God is doing in the world. And what our world history, our secular world history does, is it just focuses on what man does and omits what God is doing, which is more significant than anything man could do. And in the foundations class, I challenged everyone to come up with an event in world history that was more significant than any of the events that we put on the screen. Was anybody able to do it? I haven't heard yet, so... These are the most important events. These are foundational. Everything else stems from them. Okay? So flood is judgment, but it's also salvation. There's a scattering. Now, we kind of overlooked that one, but this is very significant as well because what God is doing in the scattering, he's dealing with humanity. Man is organizing against God in building a project that is against what God has made clear. He made clear to Adam. He made clear to Noah that he wanted to fill the earth and he wanted man to subdue and rule over the earth. Man goes totally contrary to that and organizes and builds something for himself rather than what God desired. 
And he's trying to reach God through his works. So it's a work system for reaching God. And it's the first organized or you might say worldwide effort to raise a fist in the face of God and say, we're going to do things our way. So God is going to scatter them in, in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. What he wants to accomplish, he wants to accomplish things through a multitude of people from different nations, from different groups, from different people. So he has to affect that. Now, he could have done that without the rebellion through one language, but the means that he used to scatter them was to confuse the languages. Do we have different languages today? Foundational. Where does it come from? Here it is. Linguists don't have a clue as to where languages came about. Everything's related to evolution. The Bible gives us that, and it gives us the reason. It's part of God's broader plan. And we'll talk about nations. In fact, when will God get done with nations? At the beginning of the, no, after the end of the kingdom. I mean, no, it's a trick question. (laughs) That's right. There are nations in heaven, in the heavenly state. Revelation 22, 2. Oh, no, I wonder, how is Brazil going to look like in there? <laughs> Brazil will be represented by Hinata. There you go. You may be the king over Brazil oh, in the Millennial Kingdom. That so something so. to aspire to. So we have the nations that begin here, but the nations, as all men are, they are rebellious against God. So this is also a story What follows is God is going to reject the world system and man's attempt at a utopia, at a culture that leaves God out. And now what is he going to do? He's going to work to begin the fulfillment of what he said in Genesis 3.15. He's going to call out one individual, Abraham. Out of the nations, he's rejecting the nations, calling out one individual, and he's going to create from that one individual, his own nation. And they are to be a counterculture to the rest of the nations. And it's going to be a means by which he will reveal himself to all the nations. And it'll be also a means, and by the way, when we speak of Abraham, we're going to focus on the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is sets the parameters for all the rest of world history. Look for that one in your... Uh, UNM World History Book. It sets the parameters. So everything in world history ultimately is related to the nation of Israel. And those nations, according to the Abrahamic Covenant, that treat Israel well, they will be blessed. And we've seen that historically. Those nations that, in fact, have persecuted the nation of Israel, some of them have been wiped out, and those that remain will be Basically, yeah, that's world history. And that includes Japan, that includes China, that includes Brazil, that includes North America, that includes all of the nations. God evaluates them on the basis of how did they treat his people. So that begins with the Abrahamic covenant. So all of the rest of world history, we have the parameters set. And they're specific. We'll talk about them. We'll come back to all these. So we have the nation of Israel as the product of that Abrahamic covenant. So Israel is a focal point of God's plan and world history. This is why it's a mistake to equate Israel with the church. This is why replacement theology is totally anti-scriptural. 
God did not replace Israel with the church. And if you have these foundations, you know that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And that's going to fit into eschatology. From Israel, God intended to rule the earth. That goes all the way to Genesis 1.28. Subdue and rule. This was the mandate of mankind. And now God desires to rule the earth through his people, through a nation. And under David and Solomon, that was the world empire of that day. That was a foretaste. And you might even think that perhaps... Had there been faithfulness amongst the nation of Israel, maybe Messiah might have come in the time of Solomon and established that kingdom on earth. I mean, that's hypothetical, but, you know, God had a plan that included other things as well. But he used the unfaithfulness of Israel. The latter part of the Old Testament is the collapse of that kingdom. But that kingdom, when when I give you kind of a brief overview of the kingdom, I'm going to show you that all of the elements of the kingdom of Solomon and David are present in the millennial kingdom. We'll see that. So the kingdom, the outworking of Genesis 1.28 in a nation. The kingdom collapsed, and it's towards the end of the kingdom that it's speaking in terms of the coming, what? Messiah, and he's at the heart and the most important event, so I kind of make the box there bigger most important event of world history is the coming of Messiah. In fact, I summarize all the Old Testament as anticipation of Messiah, because all of the Old Testament anticipates the coming of the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman eventuates into a person that the rest of the, the rest of the Old Testament expands upon and speaks of Messiah. So when Messiah came, what did Messiah Present to the nation of Israel. Behold, what? Kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, and this was announced before by John the Baptist. Kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he offered the nation of Israel that same kingdom that has all of the elements of the Davidic and Solomonic kingdom. I'll show you that had all of those elements. But what happened? Messiah was rejected. When Messiah is rejected, that means if you're going to reject the king, you're rejecting the kingdom as well. And I think Matthew makes the point that the kingdom is not extinguished, the kingdom is not replaced by the church, but the kingdom is postponed, and I think that's the main point of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, that there is going to be a second coming, and in that second coming, all of the elements that are described in Isaiah, all the elements in all of the other Messianic passages, all of those will be fulfilled in a second coming of Messiah. But there's an interim period between the coming of the Messiah, the church. Now, we think the church is all there is. You know, it's all about us. But it's only a part of this bigger plan that will eventuate eventually in God glorifying himself very visibly, very evident in a kingdom. Jesus is the one, this is a mystery, he's the one that introduces us to this ecclesia, also in Matthew. But it's interim. It's to bring the Jewish people into a saving relationship by jealousy. In other words, to see what God does amongst a people that is not Jewish, that is Jew and Gentile. Romans 11 
But what does Romans 11 also tell us? All of Israel shall be saved. So there's still a program or there's still aspects of what God has promised and what God has worked that will take place in the future. And in that future, there's a kingdom. John tells us it's millennial. There's the plan of God. So we have all of these foundations that we need to understand before we'll understand the millennial kingdom and all that precedes. And when you understand that, you're going to come up with a premillennial view. If you keep your hermeneutics consistent and you understand this outworking of this plan, and by the way, that millennial kingdom begins to fulfill what God purposed for mankind in general to subdue and to rule over the earth. And in that, Messiah is going to be the main ruler. And the way we live now is going to determine how we will rule and the positions we will rule with in that millennial kingdom. See how all of this works in world history. Got it? So there's a summary. All of world history on one slide. All of the Bible on one slide. Then after that, we go into the eternal state, which is outside, I believe, outside of world history. I make a distinction between the eternal state and the millennial kingdom. They're two different things. Millennial kingdom still part of world history. This should be the introduction to your text, your UNM world history text, this little exposition here, this chart. Now, the Bible gives us the future. Obviously, secular man can't come up with that, so they have no idea where things are going to end. So all of the Old Testament is anticipation of Messiah. Genesis is the origin of Israel, the focal point of God's work, the people of God, the nation that he will create that belongs to him. book of Genesis gives us the origin of that people, where they come from, from two individuals, Adam and Eve, that eventuate through Noah, through the Noahic family, eventually through Abraham, because of the Abrahamic covenant and his descendants, particularly Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob, who's renamed Israel. That's where Israel comes from. There's a summary of Genesis. And you can put all these major events, as we did in our foundations class, on a timeline. First major event of world history is creation, not the Big Bang. Hmm. Creation of all things. So let's take a look specifically at creation. And let me give you some of the main implications that we can draw from that. And these are the same as what we drew. And then we want to look at those implications in terms of eschatology and what is predicted very, very early. Well, first of all, one of the main implications is we have the foundation for everything that we know about God. So we have the nature of God as very prominent. The second word in the biblical text, Elohim, Bereshit. Actually, it's the third one. Um, the verb is preceded, but obviously the subject of that sentence, Elohim. God is the focus. And that is expanded in the rest of the Bible. Elohim, the nature of God. So we have Elohim, God. And if you want the Hebrew, there it is. How do you pronounce the Hebrew there? Very good. She knows Hebrew. (laughs) And what it tells us, what it at least implies, it's not specific, but it implies that Elohim is a transcendent God. That is implied by Bereshit in the beginning. Because God is already, God is there and there's no creation. In the beginning, God exists apart and separate from the creation. 
So from the very start of the Bible, we have a theology that is contrary to our natural instincts. Every religion, in fact, every philosophy, every concept of God is different from this idea of transcendency. In other words, God separate from the creation. All religions have God as part of the creation or somehow intimately related to the creation. What are the Egyptian gods? They have the form of, they worship frogs, they worship the sun, they worship the Nile. In other words, there's a continuity between God and his creation. There's not a separation, there's not transcendency. So the Bible starts off with that. And that's the foundation, that's the beginning of everything else. Babylonian gods took the form, some of them of animals, some of them in terms of man, these are their gods. And you look throughout history and you see that man is inclined to substitute God and make him part of the creation. And kind of the ultimate of that is pantheism where the creation is God. And God is the creation. That's kind of the ultimate end of this idea. It's only the Bible that makes God distinct and separate. We call that transcendence. Separate and distinct from the creation. So a major distinction. All non-biblical views have a continuity of gods and creation. Only the Bible, creator, is distinct from the creation. And that's a transcendent God. And we're going to see that throughout Scripture. And the great thing is this transcendent God will dwell amongst us. We'll talk about that in a moment. But another implication in the beginning, in other words, before time, there was God, so he's eternal. He's also personal because he does things. He creates. He interacts. He reveals. So he's personal. He's not only transcendent, but the Bible teaches he's eminent. He enters into the creation and has relationships and interacts with the creation. And even Genesis chapter 2, he, he gets his hands dirty. He digs into the soil. And what does he do? He takes it like a potter and molds man. So he is involved. He's imminent. And then later on, he speaks to Adam and Eve. He communicates. He gives them the ability to be able to interact with him. He creates a creature in his image with a means to be able to communicate back. He's preeminent. We can go down a long list here. I'm just giving you some highlights from Genesis chapter 1. He's preeminent. In other words, he's over everything else. He's before everything else. He doesn't have a beginning. He's eternal. But he's also preeminent over all else. He's also Trinitarian. We get that. Now, it's not explicit. And we don't get the Trinity till we get to the New Testament in detail. But... Very early, it allows for the Trinity. It, it leaves room for the Trinity. Elohim itself. The Im ending is a Hebrew what? plural. So it already tells us that in some way there's a plurality when we speak of God. Uh, God is not a singularity. He's not like Allah. He, he is a plurality. It allows room. And even very early, the Spirit of God is hovering or moving over the waters. So we have already a Trinitarian idea. And when you come to the New Testament, you find out that uh, Jesus Christ is the Word from the beginning. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. Jim, you had a comment? Question. Uh, some say it, it's a majestic uh, plural. Do you know what that means? Yeah, what they mean by that, and 
I don't agree with it. I think it, what it does is it leaves room for the Trinity. The idea is sometimes kings did this. That's why they call it a majestic plural. A king would refer to himself in the plural sense as if he were bigger than mankind. If that, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Kings would do that. Sort of the Caesars, they were worship them. They just they yeah. were some idolatry. Majestic plurality to themselves. Yeah. Trinitarian. And by the way, also... Elohim is plural, so you would expect a plural verb in the sentence. In the beginning, Elohim created, and in the Hebrew, it's singular. So in some way, this Elohim, with a plurality about him, is also only one. So you have a foundation for the rest of Scripture. So this is the foundation of theology, by the way, but it's also part of eschatology, Because this is the God that's going to manifest himself in time and eventually manifest himself in the end. He's sovereign. He works sovereignly over all things. And he does that in creation. And we could go down a longer list. I've got lots of space there. So you can include grace. You can include love. You can include all the other perfections of God there. A good summary here of sovereignty. 2 Chronicles 26. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers... Art thou not God in the heavens? And art not art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Of course. Power and might are in thy hands so that no one can stand against thee. In other words, this is what God is doing in the world and no one can thwart it. By the way, I never mentioned, I forgot, usually somebody asks me why I start off with that aircraft carrier at the very beginning there. One of the reasons is I just like the photograph. (laughs) That's not the main reason. (laughs) The main reason is because uh, that's kind of the way that eschatology comes at us. That aircraft carrier is probably the most impressive thing that man has ever put put together. It's It's a whole city in itself. It has everything that any city has including entertainment even, uh, has every, everything that man needs to live in a community in a city. And it also has probably the most destructive power that uh, anything that man has created. And uh, eschatology comes at us that way. In other words, anything in its path, even uh, the largest battleship, if it's crossing the path of that aircraft carrier, that aircraft carrier is going to slice it like butter, and no one even on board is going to be aware of that slicing of the battleship. So this kind of gives the idea of this passage here, is that no one can thwart it. In other words, all of these things that are predicted and prophesied, because we've seen a pattern that God does what he says historically, those events, nothing that man does is going to be able to stand in the way. God has all of the firepower to be able to affect what he has planned. And we summarize that with sovereignty. Make sense? And Psalm 33, 6 and 7, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. He simply spoke things into existence. And by the breath of his mouth all their host, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's why in verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Mm -hmm. He speaks everything into existence. 
Eschatologically, there are a lot of things that we can draw from this. We have some specific passages. I gave you that first one. Remember the first prophecy of all of Scripture last time? Chapter 2. 2, verse. Close. No prize. <laughs> oh, it, what it is? The first prophecy was. Uh, You're going to quote it instead of the tree. You shall die and you shall surely die. Yeah, in the day that you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, you shall surely die. That's prophetic. In fact, the Hebrew infinitive absolute there, you shall die dead, literally. And it's prophetic. It's future. So, this is before the fall. This is in the creation account. It's verse 17. 17, yes. Eschatologically, we have the glory of God on display in his creation. Now, we, we don't see it, but it, we see a description of it. Adam and Eve had a clear picture of the glory of God because they walked with him. They walked amongst him. That glory, eschatology tells us, this is how it's all going to end. The glory will be manifested. And in terms of kind of on chart form in world history, we have creation glory. And we can only read about it because we don't see that glory because we're living in a fallen world. Now, Jesus gave us a little visible picture of that glory of God at the transfiguration. The three disciples saw the glory of God. But the goal of all eschatology is that that glory will be manifested in the future. And that will be on full display during the Millennial Kingdom and beyond that into the eternal state. That's where eschatology is heading. That's why this is an important study, because it gives us a biblical perspective of God. We have a distorted view, because we're in the middle of a fallen world. So it gives us uh, one of the implications of nature of God, and I spent a lot of time dealing with evolution and the issue there and creation in the foundations class. I'm not going to do that here but uh, you can take a scientific approach and interpret the six days of creation, and it gives us a better scientific view of reality than the secular, non-biblical view, even within the church, those that tend to impose science on the text. Day one, God creates light, and I'm going to go over this quickly because this is, this is not so much eschatological, but we have the stretching out of space, day two, Land and sea and plant life. Day four, heavenly bodies. This is totally inconsistent with an evolutionary approach. Totally out of sync. You can't harmonize the two. You either choose one or the other. I'll choose the inspired version. And you can harmonize science. You don't do it the other way around. You have flying creatures, water creatures, day five. Day six, you have land animals and man. And we could expand that scientifically if we had more time. But most important is the creation of man and the nature of man. He's created in the image of God. Now, we'll see with the fall that that is distorted and damaged. And some of the major elements of the image of God, spirituality. In other words, we have spirit nature, spirit aspects to us, which is different from other creatures. Creatures don't have spirituality. We have immortality. And what I mean by that, I, I use that word instead of eternality. We are not eternal creatures. 
eternality would include future. We have a beginning. Only God is eternal. But we we will have an, an eternal in the future sense or an immortal existence. And that's true of the unbeliever as well. The question is where he will spend that eternity. Immortality, so that's part of the image of God. Intellect, I think, is also, in other words, a way to understand and to be able to conceive and to also to communicate with the Creator. Another important aspect that was tested in the garden, volition, volition or will, and really the only ones with what I would describe as free will are Adam and Eve and Jesus Christ. Everyone else, their will is coerced by sin and therefore not free. So I call it volition. We have creativity. God created a universe, but he built within man and in the image of God. We have the ability to take part of the creation and be creative with it. That's why we can subdue the earth and bring from the earth resources that benefit us and enable us to survive. Is that creativity? We can invent. We can communicate. We have the ability to form thoughts in our mind and be able to transfer those thoughts to others. We have the ability to do that communication with God himself. That's the image of God. As a result of the fall, all of these categories are damaged. Eschatologically, the image of God... It's not stated in Genesis, but we will see some of the outworking of it is that it will eventually be restored. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, part of that is restored, but not all of it. And he's given us an opportunity to take part in the restoration of some aspects of that in this life. Also, eschatologically, we have we have a creation mandate. That's Genesis 1.28. This is far-reaching. This goes all the way to the millennial kingdom, as I already alluded to. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Those two Hebrew words, to subdue, subdue it, and the the other one, to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, etc. The idea of subduing and ruling are very strong Hebrew words. I don't want to take the time to develop them, but... These are, this is the essence of man's purpose. He's to develop families. So families are at the heart of everything that God is doing. Being fruitful and multiply. But then, in order to support families and to provide for them, you have to subdue the earth. In other words, you have to plant crops in order, God's, this is the means that God made. Subduing the earth and having dominion over it or ruling over it. That theme runs through all the rest of Scripture. So individually, all of us struggle with the environment in order to survive. That's subduing, and we harness the environment in order to be able to provide not only crops, but shelter, all the things that people do to make a living, you might say, or to survive in time. And part of that ruling manifests itself in God, ultimately ruling through man on earth, And it has impacts in terms of uh, the nation of Israel and upon us in the millennial kingdom as well. So this is far-reaching, very significant in the creation. It's part of the foundation that I talked about. 
And we also, by way of implication, and we see it clearly in the book of Revelation, we have creation conditions restored. Not just man and not just spirituality, but the whole universe is going to be restored. Garden conditions restored. And let me just kind of summarize some of these. These aren't all of them, but just a real quick overview of of Revelation 21. And by the way, Revelation 21 is the eternal state. Revelation 21 is the eternal state. 21 and 22. We have a new heavens and a new earth. We have a restoration of the whole universe. And then we have a description of that new heavens and new earth. And we see that all things will be made new. 21.5. So everything is going to be restored. And it goes all the way back to Genesis. So this is kind of the completion, the bookends of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation. We see the last two chapters here restoring what was lost as a result. And that will be completed in the eternal state. Uh, we have a reference, springs from water of life. We have a water, a tree of water of life in uh, the garden, chapter 2 of Genesis. 21.6 is that reference there. And these are just some of them. There's others in there. Uh, we have precious stones noted in 21, 18 through 21. Streets of gold. We have foundation stones of very precious stones. We have a little glimpse of that before the fall when it speaks of gold, bdellium, anyox around Eden. That's uh, Genesis 2.11. Restoration. Just little hints. River of life, 22.1. There's four rivers that come out of Eden. That's Genesis 2, 10 through 14. And they're interesting rivers. They're different from the rivers that exist today after the fall. Look at the text carefully and you'll see their, their, their characteristics are different. And you have a river of life from the throne in that 22.1. You have the tree of life, which is also in the garden. The tree of life. Revelation 22.2 has 12 kinds of fruit. And in Genesis 2.9, it's in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. And there's no curse. This is after Genesis 3, after the curse is imposed upon that very good creation. 22.3 tells us there's no curse. The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed in Genesis 3. The curse is removed entirely. So there's no second law of thermodynamics. Service of bond servants. They're going to serve him. And this is what God did in placing man in the garden. He placed him in the garden to cultivate and to keep it. So heaven is going to include service. Labor and service is not laborious. It's laborious because of the fall. And in fact, those bond servants are going to reign forever, Genesis 22, 5 says. That goes all the way to Genesis 1, 28. Man is to subdue and rule. So you see, there's continuity to this plan of God that has an ending that goes all the way back to the very beginning, before a fall. And if you want to include the curse there, including the second major event there. So garden conditions, and we've said eschatologically, Genesis Genesis 2.17 is eschatological, where God announces to the man and the woman that there are going to be consequences for sin, for violating his nature. And the rest of world history is not working of that. 
world history is an outworking of that first sin, and we follow in that pattern. So by way of implication, all of the rest of world history is affected by that one decision in the garden. We know that. The question about curse. Uh, I thought that Satan would be a curse. Well, the text says no curse, but it's speaking in terms of this new heaven and the new earth. Uh, and that's where evil is bound and where evil is confined to the lake of fire. Yeah. So you're not... Well... It's describing the new heaven and the new earth. No curse in the new heaven. And it's confined as well. Evil is bounded, it has a beginning, and it is confined uh, to eternity in the lake of fire. And I don't have any dimensions in Scripture for there, how many square miles. So we'll have to wait and see. We, can, we engineers will measure it. Okay, that's creation. I'm going to go more rapidly through some of the others, but this is so foundational that I thought it's worthy of spending more time. The next major event of world history is the fall. And I've mentioned that this chronology or this timeline that I have is the most conservative that you can come up with in general. No gaps in the genealogies, taking the genealogies in their most literal interpretation. So we have a creation, and we don't have a time frame between the creation and the fall, but that's the second major event of world history. I'm giving you a biblical foundation for eschatology, and we looked at the first event, the creation, and I tried to show that what God does in the beginning, he's going to because of the fall, bring back. He's going to restore that original creation. From our perspective, we don't really have a good glimpse of that other than what we can discern from Genesis 1 and 2 and then looking ahead in Revelation 21 and 22. But I hope you've also noticed that there's there's continuity, there's a story, there's a plan to all of Scripture, and it all interacts and it all fits together. These are not just little stories, just Bible, Sunday school class stories, but there's a whole, and it all works together and fits together. And all of that works also in terms of eschatology in that some of that is not yet completed. We'll also see the outworking of a lot of what God predicted as well. And that'll include the next major event, the fall, the fall of man, some of the implications By the way, I'm using this slide with the red title, in this case, relating to the fall. These are the implications, some of the major implications that we draw. And then I'm using that other slide relating to how this sets a foundation for future things. And I call that the eschatology slide there. So one of the things that are... Implied, even more than implied, actually stated, is that uh, when man sinned, there were radical effects. And again, in the foundations class, we went into some detail looking at those radical effects. Let me just summarize them real quick. One of the things that the text says, in the day that you eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, you shall surely die, you shall die dead. Well, when we speak of deadness and we think in terms of what the Bible means by that, it involves more than just ceasing from breathing. It's not just stopping of hearts, but it has effects that are far-reaching. 
if you study other passages, you find out that it has an intellectual component. And when Adam and Eve died, their whole intellects were were changed and radically. That's why I call these radical effects. Their minds were darkened. And you can see it in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Notice they have knowledge. They knew. So their intellect is involved here. And they're aware of a new condition of nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, in their thinking, they think these loin coverings are going to solve their problem of nakedness. And they don't realize the implications of everything going on here. And even later on, you see that their entire theology is affected in that they try to hide from God. So they sense something is wrong and they know inwardly that they have a different standing and they think that they can escape an omnipresent God. So their thinking is totally distorted. Now Paul in Ephesians 4 describes the unbelieving mind as darkened. So that's the darkening of the intellect and the intellect actually died, you might say. There's also involved a moral death. They died morally because now their standing before God is changed and they didn't have any reason to be ashamed before, but they are fearful. But now they experience shame because of sin. Sin brings the experience of shame. So we have an indication of moral death. We have spiritual death. And that's also described in verses 8 and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now he asks not because he doesn't know where they're at, but because he's bringing to their awareness a condition of separation from himself. So they have died, and spiritual death is essentially separation from a holy and righteous God. So they experience spiritual death. Paul also in Ephesians 2 describes the unbeliever as dead in his trespasses and his sin. So the moment they ate of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, they died They didn't experience the physical effects of ceasing to breathing until later, but they died all the same, just as God predicted in the day that they would eat, they died. They died intellectually, they died morally, they died spiritually. But we also see in verse 10, they died emotionally. In other words, it affected their emotions. And he said, I heard, this is the man, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So he senses something's not right. There's a separation here, and that also brings emotional response of fear. So they died emotionally. There's even a social death. Now, when we speak of a social death here, we're speaking of only two individuals. But notice their relationship is different now. In verse 11, and he said, this is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Clear reminder, he's trying to convict them of their sin here. 
And then verse 12, and the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Notice the break in the relationship. Instead of taking responsibility for himself, he blames the woman. So there's blaming here. And he attaches the consequences to her rather than taking responsibility. So the relationship between the husband and the wife in this situation, the social condition is different. So he died socially. And also we are going to see in the curse that is placed upon the man that the whole purpose of mankind is radically affected as well because now the purpose of subduing and ruling is now going to be a very difficult thing and the creation itself. Part of the curse is that God inflicts the punishment by causing the creation to rebel against the man as the man rebelled against God. So now the whole creation rebels against man, making his entire purpose not one of joy, but one of laboriousness. So in 17 and 18, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, again, reminding him. This should elicit a response of repentance here. God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you should eat of it all the days of your life. So there's going to be a difficult time fulfilling the purpose of God. So he died in terms of his purpose. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. So uh, the whole environment is radically changed and is in rebellion to man, mankind. And finally, number seven, in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. There's the physical death. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So there's physical death. But that's not all. They also died physically in the sense that now they are experiencing physical consequences of their actions. Not only pain, but we even know today that biologically, cells in the body are continually dying. So in a sense, his body is dying, and it began at the moment that they ate of the tree in the midst of the garden. And then eventually, after 960 years, they cease to breathe. So that's kind of the final death there. But death, even itself, death began the moment they partook. So we have those radical effects concerning man that are explicitly stated in the text itself that define for us what death is all about. So death is the radical effect, but it not only affected man, but it also had an effect on the entire creation as well. And in the foundations class, I like to make the point that all of the physical realm has been affected, and we see even specific statements to that effect in this passage in Genesis 3 as well. And I like to categorize it in terms of the broader categories, in terms of the branches of science here that are alluded to here, actually more than alluded to. First of all, we have a curse on the serpent. And remember, 
there seems to have been some physical change that took place in terms of the serpent. If you look at the details of the text, and I won't go into the details there, but now he is a creature that crawls on the ground. So some biological changes, even DNA changes, that now that creature is different than what it was before. And he is cursed more than all of the beasts of the field, it says. So it includes not just the serpent, but the curse extends to other animals as well. So I categorize that as physical effects upon all of zoology. And we have the specific example of the serpent in that and the beasts of the field. And also part of the curse is upon the woman, and she now has pain in childbearing. And I think the change is not only in the woman, it states specifically in terms of hers, but I think the man also experienced physical changes. His body began to degenerate as well, experienced the effects of death, and there are probably other biological changes as well. So we might conclude that all of anthropology has been affected as a result of the sin of man. And when we speak of the ground being cursed, the ground is part of geophysics or the earth, and we might include all of geophysics affected, and scientists see a degenerating principle throughout the natural realm, not only in zoology, not only in anthropology, but also in sciences like geophysics and other areas as well. We commonly refer to that as the second law of thermodynamics. And I believe that at, at the fall of man, the second law of thermodynamics was turned on, if you will, as part of what God did in terms of cursing all of the creation. So the ground is cursed as well, geophysics. And part of that is botany. So I believe all of botany is affected for the first time. Thorns and thistles appear. Now, I think God in the original creation put a lot of information in the DNA molecule of all creatures and all plants. And I would say that scientifically we, we could conclude or at least come to some theory that, that within the DNA of plants, there was the potential for what would take place after sin, the potential producing thorns and thistles. And I think that would be the beginning. It probably implies that before the, before the fall, there were no, no thorns or thistles on biological plants that produce them. So all of botany, and this is just one example of how botany is affected. We might also say, as I've already mentioned, physics itself, and speak of the second law of thermodynamics, I think this is described in the text with the words of toil, now we read the passage where man will now toil to make a living, to harness resources of the natural realm, to be able to fulfill his purpose in subduing and ruling. There's going to be effort, toil, sweat, and then eventually even the culminating end product of the second law would be death. So I think the second law of thermodynamics comes into play. And that will exist until God lifts it. And as we saw when we were talking about creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no curse. So God will reverse that. But at this point, in terms of the fall, the fall of man, I believe, had an effect on the entire universe. And 
scientists today see the effects of the second law or the operation of the second law throughout the universe everywhere they look. The principle of things degenerating, the principle of things moving from a more organized state to a more disorganized state, from organization to disorganization, decay processes, degeneration, or most often the second law is applied to energy systems where the use of energy put into a system is never never produces a hundred percent output. There's always a loss of energy that's kind of in the area of physics, but it is applicable to virtually all of the sciences, not just the area of thermodynamics. So the physical effects had tremendous effects upon the entire universe. So those are some of the main implications that we can draw, or at least the first of the effects of the fall. And that's probably a good place to take a break. We'll do that for about 15 minutes.